our time of scripture reading prior to the sermon coming. We'll be reading 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 through verse 12. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 through verse 12. Beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let us pray. Again, Father, we thank you for Lord's Day, the cadence of liturgy, of confessing and celebrating and singing and giving. and uh, We just thank you for worship, our opportunity to be here and to be able to sit here as a community of your people who agree to sit underneath the weight of your word. We do desire to be Christian. And we desire to grow by your spirit working in our lives. We, each of us sincerely desire to see growth come and development and peace. And we are those who desire to see good days um, and to experience your blessing uh, in our families, our homes, our church, and our communities. This is an integral means to that. We all agree. So, Lord, use it by your spirit. Uh, in our lives, transform us, even if by a degree, that we would think long and ponder upon the things that you say to us, that we'd find ways prayerfully to apply it in meaningful measure where peace and joy would attend to our path, where we'd be able through these means to make sense of the world we live in. Uh, help us to do so, to know ourselves and to know you as we experience the preaching of your word. We pray for that blessing upon it now. Pray for Pastor Dan as he comes to share this section of scripture with us and uh, really truly by your spirit, bind our conscience to it. In your name we pray, amen. thoughts in this text, so we'll jump right in this morning. The text this morning is going to focus primarily on the inner qualities of righteous living. This is not so much or not at all really a list of things to do. We need to get that straight as we walk into the text. It's not a list of things to do, but it is more a description of what kind of person we ought to be. It's a description of the inner qualities, the inner man, the inner woman, the inner qualities that we should possess. What should be our, our, the way that we relate to one another? So it looks not 
at the outer man, not at a list of things to do, but the inner man and, and qualities that should be present. And because of this, we can quickly understand that the list that you just heard read, the things you heard read for you that we'll look at this morning are indeed impossible for us. <laughs> Apart from the grace of God. I say that because if it were just a list of things, and in your own self-strength, maybe you could think, okay, I can pull off one, two, three, four things and figure out a way to, to, to knock off this list. But when we're talking about the inner man, what should be your disposition towards believers? What should be your disposition to those who uh, re revile you, to those who oppose what you believe? What should be the inner quality of your heart in relationships to one another? You, you can't just hear a directive or a command on how you're to feel or how your inner man is to be, and then just decide, okay, I'm going to feel this way now. No, it needs a transforming work from outside of yourself. And so we remind ourselves, before we get into this text, all the way back to the beginning of Peter. If you remember, this is the foundation, these initial things said to us that all of Peter is built on. And even though we're several weeks away from it at this point in the preaching, in this letter, it's, it's just building on top of what was said. And that is that according to the abundant mercy of God, he has caused us to be born again. Purely of God's grace and mercy, he has reached down and he has given us life. He has taken sinners who were dead, who are enemies to him, and he has given us life, and he has made us his children, made us his sons, and in so doing, he promises us an inheritance, an inheritance that is incorruptible, unfading, and then right after that, he promises that he will keep you for that inheritance, that he will persevere you, that he will transform your life, that he will guard you, that he will do everything necessary for you to walk that path to, in order to obtain that inheritance. That's why he gives us the, the identity elect exiles. Elect that we have experienced the sovereign grace of God in our lives to rescue us and to save us. Exiles that, that we don't belong to this age, that as a body of people whose head is Christ, whose king is Jesus Christ, we operate according to a different ethic. According to, to something different, our lives are shaped by Christ and, and his word upon our lives. They're not lived for self-promotion. They're not lived for, for just personal advancement. They are lived for the glory of God. They are lived for the good of one another. And so we are told then that, that all kinds of things will come into our lives. Difficulties, trials of, of all variety will come for a season but God uses them purposefully to shape us in order that he can keep us for the inheritance. Right after this, though, we're followed up with these commands of, of being holy, of pursuing our Lord. And so we understand that while it is wholly a work of grace, and I can't just tell you to do something in your own self-will, you can do it. At the same time, as God gives us life, as he sets us free from sin, as he makes us a new man, he calls us to be serious then in engaging in the Christian life, in obedience to God, to put effort into, to use the means of grace that he gives us in following after Christ. And so it is in that context then that we come to this part of 1 Peter, recognizing again that what we're told to do, these inner qualities that we're told to have, they're ours by a work of God's sovereign grace. 
and they're developed as we give ourselves to the means of grace that he sets before us. This section, verses 8 through 12, really could be, it's designed to show us how to live the good life. <laughs> that we may love life and see good days. Basically, that we could have happiness, that we could make the most out of life and enjoy it. It feels kind of like a, a weird thought to put into the middle of, of Peter when so much of Peter is about how to suffer well. How to walk through trials and how to walk through suffering. Now all of a sudden he's just slipping in this, but here's how to live the good life. Here's to get your best life now. Enjoy your days. Now when we think about living the good life, I mean, that, that's what most advertisement is, isn't it? It's, they give you this product and then somehow try to convince you that this product is necessary for you to live a good life. I think of those Corona commercials, not like the virus, but the cheap beer Corona commercials. You know, that guy who's all worn out from a day of work, he's walking along the sidewalk, he goes into his you know, trashy little apartment, sits down, but as soon as he opens that Corona, He's living the good life. He's at the beach. He's got his feet up. You can see his feet. You see the water lapping in. And it's the good life. Or maybe one that I do, I am a sucker for, are the Jeep commercials. Just like they have those Jeep Wranglers. They just look awesome. They're big wheels, everything. And of course, whoever dri is driving it is like beautiful and in perfect shape. And they have like the perfect dog. The golden retriever jumps in beside them. And they go to like the best places, like they're driving through waterfalls. They're just doing all kinds of amazing stuff. And then at the end, there's like a perfect camping site they're at. And you think, man, if I had that Jeep, I would be living the good life. I would look like that guy. I would have that dog. The campfire would be perfect. It would, and in reality, you, I mean, if you get the Jeep, you can barely afford it. It's what, like 10 miles to the gallon, so. You only drive it to like Trader Joe's and drop your kids off at gymnastics or something. And in the end, it's not the good life. And so while we're suckers for it, sometimes we all know in the end that the good life is not ours by some product, by some empty promise out there. But the good life comes in relationships. That is the truth. That what defines and gives meaning and gives enjoyment and gives purpose that allows you in every circumstance to see where you are right now and enjoy life, enjoy the day, live the good life, are the relationships that God gives you. Whether that's family, whether that's friends, whether that's your church family, neighbor, whatever it might be, relationships, that is where the good life exists. I heard a pastor once who was battling with cancer, and as he was preaching, he said, Cancer is like an easy enemy for that. It can't steal my joy. I'll tell you where my battle is, and that's trying to restore the relationship with my daughter. That is what was tearing his heart apart. That is where the greatest heartaches of life come, is in those relationships. And so in the vice versa, the greatest joy, the being able to find meaning and purpose and joy and just living the good life comes in relationships. And so what Peter is doing here is he's giving us really proverbial or natural wisdom that the way God created things in relationship as we were meant to exist in community in relationship as social beings that the natural order the fabric of life that if you live in this way in such a way if your inner man is directed in this way it'll be the good life the peaceful life the joyful life 
And so first he's going to show us how we live the good life. What are those inner qualities that we must have person to person within the church, within the church, Christian to Christian? How are we to act towards one another? What is our disposition towards one another to be? Then from there, then the church as a whole and individuals within the church, what then is our relationship to the world or to those who oppose our worldview, oppose what it is that we hold dear? And then we're reminded at the end that in all of these relationships, there is a direct correlation to how we relate to our God. All right. So let's just look at the five things here in verse 8. What is the inner qualities, the disposition that we're to have to one another? Peter, I'm not sure what his purpose in doing so, but of these five qualities, there seems to be kind of an order that one and five belong together. Two and four belong together, and then that middle one is brotherly love, and that is kind of the pinnacle. That is what we are really reaching for. So as we cover them, we'll kind of cover them in that order with one and five together, two and four together, and then look at brotherly love last. So the first one that we see there, finally, all of you. Okay, so what he's doing is he's drawing us to conclusion. He's made some general comments, and then he's looked at specific relationships, looked at relationships of the servant and the master and how are they to relate to one another the husband and the wife and how are they to relate to one another now he's looking at the church to us and saying all of you all of you me you here is how you are to to relate to the qualities that you are to have as you relate to one another and the first is unity of mind or like-mindedness might your translation be it is sharing a common faith or a, a sharing a, an ethical tradition. I think we understand this doesn't mean that we all are the same or we all have the same thoughts about everything. That, that's never going to happen. That wouldn't be healthy if it happened. That we all walked in, we all think exactly the same about everything. Because of our background, because of our p- personalities and specific passions that we have we're all going to come in and and look at things a little bit differently and there might even be theological things and and expositions of scripture that we look at and we have different thoughts on so it's not talking about agreeing exactly on everything but it is having the same sort of core convictions that shape our worldview as the same sort of ethic and that is that we are elect exiles that christ indeed is our king and our lives are to be lived for his glory And we share that, and that sets us apart, that this world is not our home. We are indeed sojourners in it. That we all recognize collectively that none of us personally holds the key inside of us to our problems. The problem exists inside of us, and we all look outward to the same thing for the solution to that problem. Namely, Jesus Christ, as he's presented to us in the gospel. And so we have the same mind, the same general ethic and it might work itself out a little differently here or there but the same general ethic and Christian worldview as we approach things you think of the church in Philippi if you remember how it was established Acts 16 you see that you have just this really random collection of people you have in uh, Lydia a wealthier middle class uh, Jewish woman who is a, a Christian a businesswoman a seller of fine things, purple garments. And she has some leadership with some other Jewish women, and and that kind of makes the core of the church. And then you have this Greek slave girl who's an an orphan who's being taken advantage of by people dealing in witchcraft and 
Paul comes and sets her free from that bondage and she becomes part of the church. Then later you have the Philippian jailer. Obviously a, a former Roman soldier who now has this blue collar job as the night watchman at the jail. And as Paul and Silas break free from their bonds and yet stay in the jail, God uses that to convert the Philippian jailer and him and his family. The baptized and they're added to the church. And so you have this church. There's nothing the same about them. It's wealth, these wealthy Jewish women, this slave girl who is Greek coming from a terrible background, this former Roman soldier. And God brings them together, though, and they are of one mind. And you can see that in Philippians, as, as in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to them, have the same mind among you. I'll spend a little more time on this one than the other, so don't worry, we'll move quicker through them. But unity of mind is so important. What's sad about most churches is churches that face division, and a lot of churches face division, is that rarely is it a theological issue that causes the divide. It's something, like, ridiculous, something real petty. Someone's feelings are hurt, a song we didn't sing or that we did sing, the color that was picked for the chairs. And we allow these little things to come in and to cause division, and instead of allowing the, the, the common passions, the common worldview, the common thing that we are, our minds are set upon to give us unity of mind. The fifth one that we'll look at together with it is humility of mind. If you're going to have unity of mind, you have to have humility of mind. It's the idea of not being competitive, not always looking for an advantage. Consider it to the needs of others. Quick to recognize others instead of scrambling for credit all the time. And this disposition of humility that cares about the advancement, cares about the good of another instead of always looking in a competitive way for yourself to advance. And so the Lord calls us as a church, this should be your disposition to one another. You want to live the joyful, good life, then this is the disposition you should have. The next two that he puts together, you see there, um, unity of mind, sympathy. To, to be sympathetic. I'm naturally not a sympathetic person. My wife just finished nine months of pregnancy and had a baby, and she would attest that I struggle with sympathy at times. And yet we are called to be sympathetic people, that we would be able to share in the feelings, share in someone's view of something. So the idea of sympathy has less to do with you know, telling someone you know how they feel or really even talking to them. Most sympathy happens in a majority of time in silence, it's very time-intensive. It's very personal and being present with someone. It's a lack of, of judgment as someone works through something in their life and maybe in a different way, in a different pace than you would, but instead of growing impatient, it is lack of judgment and care for them as they walk through it. Paired with that, then, it's what the text calls a tender heart. Maybe your text is compassionate. Again, to speak with the insides that we are in our inner man, we are disposed to someone. That, that we, we really want their good. It's not just empty flattery that we say and then we move on. But we are disposed to, our hearts are moved 
for other people, that, that they are moved with compassion for other people. We talked about as an elder team probably over a year ago now, that as elders you're called to be people who have tender hearts and thick skin. But naturally, we're just the opposite, aren't we? We're very thin-skinned. We're easily offended. Sometimes even going out looking for an offense, and then you know you assign the worst possible motives to someone and something they say, and you assume negative things about people, and you become very thin-skinned and easily offended and always needing to be defensive. And at the same time, your heart sort of grows hard towards people. So you're hard-hearted and that you'd rather see them get what they have coming instead of be disposed towards them to see them thrive. And then at the center of all of it is brotherly love. Brotherly love, familial covenant love that we have for one another. Paul or Peter has already addressed brotherly love in chapter 1 as he came towards the end of it. As he talks about what he has saved us to and, and what he has saved us from. And he has brought us together for this reason, reason that we might have brotherly love one for another. He uses two words to describe it, if you can remember. One is that it is sincere. That is, it's not hypocritical. It's not wearing a mask. So it's not that I just come up and offer you some flattery and really don't care how things turn out for you. Sometimes brotherly love demands a difficult conversation, some confrontation, a, a season of time of, of difficulty and working through something with someone because it is sincere. You want the best for that person. It is sincere. The other word that he uses is earnest. That it is earnest brotherly love. Earnest has the idea that you're looking for it. You're intentional in it. You're not like just waiting for some church program to start that allows me to love somebody. But you think, how can I find ways to demonstrate love and care towards this person? Earnest, sincere brotherly love. So he says, in all your relationships, then, all of you, this should be the quality of your character towards one another. This should be your disposition towards one another. These things are impossible. <laughs> Apart from the transforming work of God's grace in your life. It starts with, right here on Sundays of being present, being together, hearing the word of God proclaimed, the means of grace, of singing together, proclaiming God's goodness and our dependence and need on him, confessing together our sin to the Lord. But it can't just begin and end with an hour and a half on Sunday. It takes genuine conversation. It takes care for one another. It takes knowing a little bit about one another and, and knowing someone's passions and being able to get behind those and encourage them in it. It takes honesty. So it is a work of the Spirit. It is a work of grace in our lives, and yet it takes intentional effort for us to live this way. And while it is unnatural and it, we want to be defensive and we'd rather get in a fight and all those things sometimes, you want to enjoy your days and have the good life, live in a community that acts like this. No matter how tough the circumstances get, that is the good life. And so now he turns and he's going to move in verse 9. Then how do we relate then to those outside of the church? Or maybe even within the church, those who insult us or come up to oppose us. But primarily, how do we relate to those who oppose 
what we stand for, oppose the gospel. And look how he says it in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Reviling, it's the, to in, insult or defame one's character, verbal abuse. One commentator says it this way. It sounds like he was, had just wrote this this week, but it's actually from 2000 that he wrote it. He says, these are the weapons typically employed in an agnostic honor and shame society for challenging the honor of others and publicly shaming and discrediting those who are different or regarded as one's competitors. The response of non-retaliation is startling within this culture. Haven't we just seen that escalated recently? This idea of insulting and reviling, you see it constantly in politics, in the news, social media. The church isn't free from it either, engages in it. And it's this just constantly, instead of being able to have a conversation or a disagreement or debate, it's this all-out attack. It's what, if you remember what um, C.S. Lewis calls a, a bulverism, that rings a bell, God in the dock. C.S. Lewis makes up this, this story, this character, Ezekiel Bulver. And he, it's just a made-up story about a made-up character to, to sort of make a point. Ezekiel Bulver is a five-year-old kid. He's pretty nondescript, not that gifted, whatever, just a normal little five-year-old. But he overhears his parents arguing. And the father has made some sort of statement, and the mother turns to him and says, you only say that because you're a man. And Ezekiel has, in that moment, this, you know, it goes off in his mind. To win an argument, you don't really need to know anything about the argument. And so he creates this way of arguing. And so the number one thing is to always assume that your opponent is wrong because he is a bad person. So in any disagreement, I start by just knowing Kyle's wrong because he's bad. Therefore, when Kyle makes his argument, I don't need to listen to what he says because he's wrong. And when I respond, I don't have to respond to any argument he makes. Instead, what I do is I tell Kyle why he's saying what he's saying. I just expose his motives. And since I know he's a bad person, that's easy for me to do. I mean, it isn't, I mean, it's this sort of made-up scenario that C.S. Lewis gives of this Ezekiel Bulver. He talks about writing a whole um, biography of this made-up character. But doesn't that sound like it's just that's become the, <laughs> the way that in the news and the media and the politics, the way that we operate? It just immediately is attack, attack, attack. You don't do this, well, you don't do that because you believe this, well, you don't believe this. And it becomes this reviling and insult, and there's never any conversation, there's never dialogue. And instead, it's just this back and forth. And he's telling Christians, we need to be different than that. When insult and reviling comes, it doesn't mean that you have to roll over. It doesn't mean that you can't to speak up for yourself and, and defend not your name, but defend the name of the Lord and defend the gospel when someone is coming at it. But it's not trading insult for insult. Instead, you bless those who curse you, who insult you, who revile you. Man, that is difficult to do. 
But if you're able to do it, it, it is such a salt and light moment for the world around us. And how do you bless? I mean, just simply, it, it can be in different ways, but that you genuinely want someone's best in that argument. Even if you disagree with them, even when they come to insult, your hope, your prayer is for their best. So instead of magnifying their error and turning it into gossip and, and, and hoping that it just kills their reputation, you protect that person's testimony as much as possible and you pray for and you want their best. And perhaps you can even offer a word of kindness or perhaps the word of kindness. That would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a rolling over because you're scared to get into a conversation with someone. It's not, it's just, instead of returning barb for barb, insult for insult, instead of turning that into, I know you're wrong because you're bad, and let me tell you why you're bad. It's engaging with someone and blessing even when insult is coming towards you. Again, this sort of spirit is impossible apart from the work of God in our lives. That's why we must work to cultivate it by God's grace. Give ourselves to the means of grace, to conversation with others where that can be cultivated. <clears throat> the end of verse 8, or verse 9, I'm sorry, there's this little comment. I just want to comment on it briefly here. It says, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about how it's God's grace alone at work in our lives that, in, by which we find favor. And yet, we need to have a category for Christians for all of these, these phrases that are conditional, that, that are put into the text. Without all of a sudden thinking, oh, it's not salvation by grace alone. I have to do this, and then if I do it, then God will be gracious to me. You see them all throughout the text. Just a couple of highlights. The Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. God says that he gives mercy to those who are merciful. He will show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So does this mean that I earn God's mercy by showing some mercy? Or the, the Lord's Prayer, at the end of the prayer, he, it says about those who are forgiving. It says, if you will not forgive one another, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. So does that mean I earn God's forgiveness by being a for? No. What it's saying is that God, again, remember, he has brought us new life, and this new life makes us a new man. It's according to his abundant mercy. And this new man means that we live, that, that our inner man is, is different, is engaged differently, and it's a work of God's grace. But it's something that we must cultivate by the means of grace. So that you could say, the one who has been shown mercy is a merciful person. That a forgiven person is a forgiving person. That we recognize that we have been blessed by God when we reviled him. That we came to him, we did not earn his favor, and yet he blessed us. And so we are people then who don't make someone else live perfectly in order for us to treat them kindly. But we are people who exchange a blessing for insult. The two belong together. The inner qualities of a Christian should be marked in this way. It doesn't mean that I stand up and judge each of you trying to decide if you're a Christian by how you're reacting and blessing and forgiving. We're all on a journey. We all will do it imperfectly, but we all should be striving and growing in it. 
The one who is blessed by the Lord is one who is a blessing to others. The two belong to God together. And now verses 10 through 12 sort of explain that a little further for us. <clears throat> I'll read it and then we'll make a few comments and be done. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So, so this is what it is to bless someone else. It kind of explains a little further. Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34. To bless is to this. It, to, to bless someone is this. It is the good life. It is good days. That, that's the blessing we receive. To bless someone else is this. Is to keep your tongue from speaking evil, your lips from speaking deceit. I mean, Proverbs is full of that kind of stuff. If you want to live a good life, learn how to control your tongue. Listen to just a couple of these Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. A babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked is violence. To live the good life, enjoy your days, is to not engage in this sort of stirring the pot, in this sort of mean, foolish language that just creates a storm wherever you go. You know this is true. You know people like it. Maybe you're like this sometimes. We probably all are at some points in our life. But we're so quick that we want to get that quick biting comment back. We want to get even. We want to, and it feels good for about two minutes. And then you've got to deal with the aftermath of it for the next month. You want to enjoy your days, have the good life? Then control your tongue. You want any of these relationships to have the right sort of disposition towards others? Then you need to control your tongue and quit getting to every possible fight that you can. His lips from speaking deceit. People who just spin things, tell stories, exaggerate, lie. They get themselves in a heap of trouble. I've had more than one counseling opportunity where people who have, their dishonesty has just spun them in a terrible spot. Be honest. You want to live the good life? Be honest. It says, turn away from evil. And do good. I read in commentary, this do good, it's used, I think, 12 times in the New Testament is what it said. I'm not going to get these right now. Around 12 times in the New Testament. And Peter uses it like seven of those 12 times. He likes this term of do good. Again, sometimes we can kind of, you know, as reform folks, do good. What it, I think it has this idea of the skills, the talents, the education, the position, the relationships that God has given you, use those skills, those talents, that position to advance others. Use that position to, to work for good, to return goodness and beauty to a fallen creation. To use your creativity and your cultivation wherever you are in life to advance goodness. 
You can do that. What God has, education he's given you, what talents, whatever your area of business is, to be honest, to work hard, to be one who sees goodness and beauty and helps bring a portion of that goodness and beauty back to the fall as little creators and little cultivators that God has made. So you turn from evil and whatever God has given you to do, instead of just adding to the hardship, adding to the evil, do good, and then let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, instead of always running for the fight, instead of always living for self-justification and vindication and, and revenge, whatever it is, instead seek peace and then pursue that way of living. And then look at verse 12 as we close. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's not a threat. It can kind of sound like that, like the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. I think this is a play on the ironic blessing. Let your face shine upon us. That the Lord's face is shining upon his people. Those who, who are striving to live in this way. His ears are open to their prayer. As you call out to him for help, he is quick to help you. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The way we relate to one another is directly correlated to the way God relates to us. Not because we're earning God's favor, earning his face shining upon us, but because he has set us free and he has called us to a life as elect exiles, then those qualities, that, that disposition that marks the elect exile is the disposition that invites God's favor and God's blessing. That's the good life. Unless we ever get conceited then and thinking, man, I have earned something. I have earned God's favor. Let's remember the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The only reason that your sin, your evil is forgiven, is covered up. The only reason God will not turn his face away from you is because God turned his face away from the one who did no evil, Jesus Christ. When he took your sin upon himself on the cross. It's in the shadow of the cross that God's face shines brightly upon us. Not because we did it a little better than those who aren't in the church. And yet God calls us to, to live in this way, to have this disposition towards one another. Let's take inventory in our own lives. What are things that we are doing in our own lives? Are we promoting this sort of atmosphere within the church, this sort of brotherly love and humility towards one another? Are we returning blessing for reviling? And are we rejoicing in the truth that those whom God set free, his face shines upon us. He indeed is our blessing and he makes us a blessing to others. He hears our prayers and all because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Forgiveness wasn't free. It wasn't just that the sins got swept under the rug. It cost Jesus Christ his life. He hung on the cross. He bore those sins. The father turned his face away in order that his face may shine brightly upon you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, we pray that we will be submissive to it. 
Lord, I pray that you will use it to, Lord, just continue to transform our lives, to, to help see our relationships within the church grow and thrive. Lord, it's been a, a, a weird year and lots of things that could cause division. We thank you for your grace that there's been a, a measure of, even in the midst of different views, a, a, still a common mind of honoring you and loving neighbor. Pray that you continue to promote that in our hearts and our minds.